Hi, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Esty, your host today for our Colorado Bridge series, MAT in the ED. This is a series that takes emergency physicians, advanced service providers, and nurses through the nuts, bolts, and clinical nuggets of treating opioid use disorder in the ED. In this episode, we're going to learn everything buke, ranging from how to select appropriate patients, to how to perform inductions, to how to troubleshoot complications, and finally, what Colorado is doing to try to make this the standard of care in all EDs. So gentlemen, in our last episode, we discussed why bube is the MAT drug of choice for the ED. Let's start this podcast off with a case. I've got a 30-year-old IV drug user who has been using heroin heavily for the last decade. She last injected around 24 hours ago and was brought in by friends with vomiting, medriasis, piloerection. What does her care currently look like in most EDs? Well, it sounds like that case vignette describes withdrawal and pretty bad withdrawal. And if I were to be absolutely frank to tell you what her care looks like in most emergency departments currently, I'd say that her care is poor at best and absolutely negligent at worst, especially when you think about what we have to actually treat opioid withdrawal. Say more. So our current approach would be the following. One, the patient is vomiting. You tell that she's in withdrawal. You order an IV. The nurse goes in. The patient has been using heroin IV for the last 10 years. Her veins are fried and she's dehydrated. So what happens is the nurse is searching for an IV. They get multiple sticks. The patient does not do well with multiple sticks. So immediately you have the patient being angry and an adversarial relationship that's set up between the patient, the nurse, and now the whole medical community. In the end, the nurse comes to you, says, we can't get an IV, and you have to either go in there and put a central line in or throw a line in her EJ. So immediately it gets off to a really rough start. Once you do have access, you give a bunch of medications, sometimes Zofran, Phenergan, Haldol, Clonidine, Benzos, Ketamine. And here's the thing. None of those works well for opioid withdrawal. So what typically happens with these patients that I've done multiple times over the course of my career is you basically give them enough drugs so that they're snowed. And once they're snowed, they're not complaining. But guess what happens? They stay in your emergency department for 5 to 10 hours or more until you can discharge them, until they're awake enough that you can actually get them out the door. And when you discharge them, you usually give some flippant advice to not use drugs. Sometimes you give them a list of handouts for rehab centers. The patient's not happy. If they have friends and family that are with them, they're not happy. And to be honest, you're not happy. Your nurse is not happy. Overall, this experience sucks for everyone. And when you look at it, what we've done for this patient globally and what we've done to our emergency department globally, all of those are failures. We've really accomplished nothing for the patient. We haven't treated the underlying issue. We've taken up a valuable ED space for hours and hours at a time. And you know that this patient is likely to come back again, and you just hope that one of your partners instead of you picks them up. To be frank, yes, we were treating their symptoms. We were trying our best to get their symptoms under control, but we weren't actually treating their disease effectively. And moreover, I will be the first to say that for me, these were second-class patients. These were patients who I didn't like caring for, that I didn't treat as well as my other patients, that I often thought don't belong in my emergency department. That is now a total 180. I recognize that they have a life-threatening disease. I recognize that we have effective treatments. I know how to treat this disease for the first time ever, I'd say. And it's totally revolutionized my enjoyment and my commitment to this patient population. And I think a lot of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, have not liked caring for these patients. And I think a lot of us can really help revolutionize our care and, again, find the joy in caring for this patient population once we start using buprenorphine. So it sounds like being effective changed your practice Steve, have you had similar cases? What's your experience of how Bupe changes this equation? Well, my experience is the exact same as Don's. Uh, the moment your radar detected drug-seeking, the battle was on. But the good news is that now there's buprenorphine and there's a better way. So let's take the same patient. Instead of ordering an IV, a bunch of meds and labs and maybe imaging, you give some ondansetron, 8 milligrams ODT, 
Then you give buprenorphine, 8 milligrams sublingual. Then you walk out of the room and see other patients. You come back in in 30 to 60 minutes. If they're not better, you give another 8 milligrams of buprenorphine. After one to two hours, the patient is out of withdrawal. They're feeling much better and are now ready to talk with the social worker or peer counselor about addiction clinic follow-up. Then you discharge them. No IV, no unnecessary labs, no conflict, happy patient, happy nurses, length of stay, one to two hours. And what I found is that these patients are so incredibly thankful. Best of all, you've addressed the underlying pathology and have arrived at an appropriate disposition. I, I couldn't agree more. And I've seen so many of these cases that go exactly like Steve mentions, where the patient comes in, they're in withdrawal, they look like absolute dog crap. They get a few doses of buprenorphine, you come back, they're so thankful to be out of withdrawal. And they're so pleasant to speak with and to be with. I mean, really, they are now one of my favorite patients to care for. I, I'll be the first to try to run and sign up for the patient in opioid withdrawal. Um, and I'll tell you, the first time that I gave buprenorphine and had this type of experience, I walked out of the room and said, why the hell have I not been doing this my entire career? Why has it taken me this long to start treating patients this way? Okay, so what is the process for deciding whether a patient is appropriate to induce with bup? So there are really just three things that you should use to decide whether a patient is a good bup candidate. First, the patient has to be in opioid withdrawal. If they're not in withdrawal, they're not a candidate. And if you do it too early, you might precipitate withdrawal. Second, the patient wants buprenorphine and wants to potentially try to get into recovery. That's a great patient to start on buprenorphine so they see what it's like. Third, the patient has no contraindications. And we're going to get into this a lot more as we kind of go through some protocols. But the biggest contraindications are that they've been taking for a long time methadone or another very long-acting opiate. And you might get yourself into a little bit of trouble with their physiology because they've been on a very long-acting drug. There's other kind of counterindications such as, you know, liver failure, which I think is an important one to recognize, uh, other counterindications like if they're using a lot of other drugs. I think some of those are really gray because if they are using benzos or they're using alcohol, buprenorphine is still safer for them than if they're using alcohol and heroin or if they're using benzos and heroin. So some of those are, are somewhat gray counterindications. All right. So you've decided your patient's a good candidate. Is there a good algorithm for the induction process? So yes. And to make it easy, there are two major groups that have published about ED buprenorphine programs. The first is Gail, who we've already spoke about, and their great program at Yale. And the second is Andrew Herring and what they're doing at Highland and in concert with California ASAP, who developed a program called ED Bridge. Don and Steve, could you please walk us through the ED Bridge protocol? Yes. You know, the first step to ED Bridge is determining whether the patient is in moderate to severe opioid withdrawal. And a lot of clinicians will, make, will feel comfortable making this call based on their examination of the patient. For those who might not be as familiar with opioid withdrawal or want something that's a little more scientific than your clinical gestalt, then there's this great scoring system called the COWS score. And COWS stands for Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale. This COWS score really goes through a few things, and I'll just kind of list them out for those of you who aren't familiar. It goes through resting pulse rate, sweating, restlessness, pupil size, bone and joint aches, runny nose and tearing, GI upset, tremor, yawning, anxiety or irritability, and goose flesh or, you know, goose pimples or um, piloerection, whatever you want to call it. So you add all these up, and at the end of it, mild withdrawal is anything that's between 5 and 12 points. Moderate withdrawal is anything that's between 13 and 24 points. Moderately severe withdrawal is 25 to 36, and severe withdrawal is 36 and above. And if you want to boil that down, the thing that you have to remember is you want someone with a cow score of at least 8 to really induce them on buprenorphine. So let's assume, yes, the patient does meet criteria for moderate to severe opioid withdrawal. The next thing to look at is do they have any complicating factors? And we're going to talk about complicating factors later, like if they have liver disease or, or have been taking a long-acting. But for right now, let's say no, they have no complicating factors. The next step is really easy. Order 8 milligrams of some lingual buprenorphine. Give that to the patient, go see another few patients, wait an hour, and come back. 
If the patient's symptoms have improved, they're feeling better, then you should give a second dose of either 8 to 24 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine. So now you're basically saying, yes, this is working. I'm going to go ahead and load this patient with buprenorphine so they have better symptom control. You wait another hour, and then you discharge them. And when you discharge them, you should be discharging them with naloxone. And if you have the option and you have your X waiver, they should also get a prescription for buprenorphine and referral to treatment. So that's what it looks like if you have a very simple patient who rules in for treatment with buprenorphine, who does well with buprenorphine, and who you give a second dose to. They're basically in and out of your emergency department in around 120 minutes or two hours. That's about as simple and easy an algorithm as I've heard. Let's step back, though, and can you address some of those complicating factors you mentioned? Yes, of course we can. And I'm going to actually let Steve do the discussion of those complicating factors because he deals with patients with complicated histories all the time. What I will say is if you identify a complicating factor, it doesn't mean that you can't give buprenorphine. It means that you should probably just get help from someone who knows a little bit more than you do, like speaking with an addiction specialist. Um, but anyway, Steve, why don't we run through the list of complicating factors that emergency physicians should know about? Okay, a list of complicating factors would include clinical suspicion of acute liver failure. So here I'd be looking for clinical signs and symptoms of liver failure. You don't need to get LFTs on these patients. Another complication would be the intoxicated or altered patient. Usually this, this is going to be with a, another sedating drug, such as benzodiazepines or alcohol. And then there's the patient that is overdosed and been given naloxone and I've heard, Steve, that you know when patients are given naloxone, I've heard some trying to induce them on bup. Do you think that's a good idea to, to really use bup that acutely after someone's overdosed? It can be tricky, and I would probably recommend against it. You would at least have to wait until the naloxone wore off, so keep the patients monitored until then and just make sure that there wasn't a long-acting opioid on, on board before their overdose. Yeah, and I think a lot better way and how I'd usually take care of these patients is they get naloxone, you make sure that they're safe from their overdose. And when you discharge them, I tell them, hey, when you are ready to do something different, when you're ready to try to get in recovery, come back to us when you're in withdrawal and we'll start you on buprenorphine. We can help you get into recovery. So that's probably what I'd leave them with. Rather than trying to, to cram everything into one visit, their opioid, you know, their opioid reversal, and then starting them on a bup, I think that's just a, a little too high a mountain to climb for that type of patient population. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to, to get that point in, and I'll let you continue with the, uh, the list. Okay, and the next complication, that leads to our next complication, which is taking methadone or a long-acting opioid, such as oxycodone or MS-Cotton. These can obviously be problematic in that if you give them the buprenorphine, you're more likely to precipitate a withdrawal. Yeah, and that's methadone, opana, which is off the market, oxycotton. Uh, if they've been on a fentanyl patch, you know, for a long time, there's a few that kind of meet that ticket. Another complicating factor would be if you're dealing with a patient with chronic pain who is prescribed opioids. These can be complicated patients. They often take opioids multiple times per day and they might be better served with a referral to an addiction clinic. Yeah, I think very complicated patient population. Um, whether they have a true addiction versus just chronic pain, which they have a dependency, is sometimes tricky to tease out. So an addiction specialist like yourself is sometimes the best way to treat this patient population. Right, and the last complication would be that patient that you're just not sure about. They have a borderline cow score and aren't quite in enough withdrawal to go ahead and give them the eight milligrams. One option would be you can give a lower dose of two to four milligrams of buprenorphine and then reassess in, in an hour. And, and you can always give more. And the other thing that I do with this patient population sometimes is say, hey, you're not in bad enough withdrawal yet. We can either wait around for a few hours or... You know, if the ED is really hopping and busy, you can discharge them and say, hey, come back in, you know, five to 10 hours when your withdrawal is worse, and we'll jump all over treating you. Um, whether you watch them in the ED till their withdrawal gets worse, or you discharge them with instructions to come back, is really how I think you should handle that type of, that type of patient population. I'm glad you brought that up, Don, because I had a question uh, about this. Do you make this offer routinely to your OUD patients? Do you say, hey, if you ever want to get on Suboxone, wait till you're in withdrawal and come 
see us at the ED? Is this a service you offer broadly? It's a service that I think we should. And in the ED Bridge program that's currently um, being implemented in California, they have signs in their emergency department that basically elicit patients and say, if you have a problem with pills or if you have a problem with heroin, we're here to help and ask us more. And patients now know from these emergency departments that they can go in and get help. And they also know, because this gets around the OUD community pretty quickly, that when you go in, you should try to be in withdrawal because then they can actually treat you with the medication and get you better and get you onto that road to recovery. Can we talk more about precipitated withdrawal? I know this is a big concern when initiating BUP. And for these patients who often have been on Suboxone, they're very wary of it and very aware of it. What is it and how do you deal with it? And what are the risk factors? You know you're dealing with precipitated withdrawal when the patient gets worse instead of better after you've given that first dose of buprenorphine. And in my opinion, the best treatment option is to just give more buprenorphine. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of controversy around this because there is no good study, right? And one thing that you do is you could say, hey, you know what? You're in withdrawal. We've made your withdrawal a little worse because we've kicked off the opioids that you did have on your opioid receptor with the buprenorphine. So what if we give you more bup and we occupy more of those receptors than what we are? Maybe we'll get you out of your withdrawal. The other option that I think is totally reasonable that some providers would take is to say, you know what? You're not doing well on the bup. We've given you eight milligrams why don't we switch to clonidine and to other medications, to clonidine, to ketamine, you know, to, to Tordal, to, to nausea control. And I'm sorry, I'm so sorry I made you withdraw worse, but we should just give this more time and you can either come back to see us or we can wait this out a little more and give you a little more bup afterwards. The last thing is if you've given someone buprenorphine and they've gone into much worse withdrawal, the option of last resort would be to give them a full and a powerful agonist, right? And that would be giving them a dose of IV fentanyl or Dilaudid, something that's going to help occupy those last opioid receptors that they have and take them out of withdrawal. That, to me, is really something that you should try to avoid, but you should always know that that's also in the back pocket, that you can't always use a full agonist and help withdrawal symptoms, you know. So again, I agree with Steve. Next step is to try to talk to the patient and give them more bup. And if not, then to do symptomatic management. And if absolutely, absolutely last step would probably to be giving a full agonist. Right. And it's important to remember that a very common side effect of buprenorphine is nausea. So if you give that first dose of buprenorphine and they become nauseated, just give them some Zofran, wait a period of time. Don't jump to the conclusion that they've got precipitated withdrawal. That's an extremely, extremely important And Steve, caveat. you brought up the Zofran earlier. Is that something you routinely do in practice is you give Zofran before you induce with bup? I don't know if this is the right answer, but this is my, this is what I do in practice. In the emergency department, I usually will give ondansetron with buprenorphine. In the clinics, I virtually never do. Hmm. And it's usually not a problem. Obviously, you're giving a sublingual dose. So if they were to vomit right after you administered it, they've still got the buprenorphine. So, Don, I'm curious. You said that after a first dose, you've got a patient who's still miserable or more miserable, and you said you would ask the patient what they'd like to do in terms of further bup doses. Oh, yes. And I don't mean ask like, hey, how much more should I give you? I mean ask in a shared decision-making sort of way, where I think that the right thing to do would be to give you more buprenorphine. But a patient might go, what the heck are you talking about? That made me feel worse. And I'd talk with them about the fact that the second dose would likely make you feel a lot better. But it's, again, where the patient feels worse, I want to make sure that the patient is on board with the treatment plan. And if they say, you know what, I don't want to go down that road anymore, give me some clonidine, give me some Zofran, uh, and let me come back another time, I'd be totally fine with that. So again, it's more of an ask in terms of shared decision-making than an ask of, yo, what should I do next? <laughs> sure, that makes sense. Let's talk about high-dose bup. I know that's something that's a little controversial. And also, just a related question, how firm are these numbers for your first and second dose? Does it depend on body mass, or how do you decide doses? 
So I think that it really depends, and you're going to see some variation here. Uh, in, if you look at the old psychiatry literature, they go much lower, two milligrams, four milligrams. It's a step-by-step process. In the emergency department, uh, when you look at our different protocols, we're much more aggressive because we don't want to keep patients there for six hours. And we know that we're dealing with a safe drug. So most programs will just simplify and say, start with eight, which is a pretty good dose. And if they're doing good, give another eight. Now, when it comes to high-dose buprenorphine, that's when you do start getting a little bit of variation in what experts think you should do. And I, for one, am a fan of giving higher-dose buprenorphine based on the physiology that we know about and based on the drug. And Steve, I don't know if you're also a fan of loading patients with buprenorphine in certain scenarios, um, but I'd love to hear your take on it as well. Well, I think in the emergency department, it's a great idea. I really don't see a lot of downside. The risk of over-sedation is, is minimal. And by giving a higher dose, you're effectively going to make the medication last longer. So you're buying more time for them to get to definitive care. Yeah. And the evidence says if you load someone and they walk out of your emergency department and they have on board 32 milligrams of buprenorphine that you've loaded them within the, next, within the first, I'd say, two to three hours they've been there with you, that you can stave off withdrawal symptoms for two to three days. Right? And I know in Vermont, they actually have dosing models based on that. Right, they do. They will dose patients three times a week. So they'll give a dose Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And that Friday dose will last until Monday. And that's for patients who live quite a ways from clinics and can only get to a clinic three days a week. Yeah, and they're using high-dose buprenorphine every single week for these patients. And again, if we know our science and we know our biology and our, and our biophysiology, this is a safe drug. Why not give a higher dose? Keep that patient out of withdrawal. And even if all we did for the patient is, you know, they, they left our emergency department doors and instead of coming back in 24 hours, they came back in 48 or 72 hours, we've saved the system money, we've saved that patient time, and again, we've made it easier for them to try to arrange for outpatient management, be that OBOT or OTP. Is there any follow-up or retention data for those patients on the three-time-a-week high-dose plan? We're anxiously awaiting those studies, but this is being routinely done. Yeah, and I think that's what you'll find with a lot of buprenorphine in this new era, right? Is we're figuring out what the best treatment programs look like. And for Colorado, we are very, very excited because we uh, are going to be launching a program called Colorado Bridge. And what we're going to do is we're going to take what they've done in California with ED Bridge, which has been championed by two really great, smart emergency physicians, Andrew Herring and Amy Mullen, and we're going to bring it here to Colorado. And we're also going to apply our own science and our own systems to this. So we're going to modify it a little bit, but we're really going to stand on the shoulders of those giants. And then we're going to try to push this out and make it standard of care and really give all of Colorado a playbook to go by when it comes to inducing patients on MAT from the emergency department. I think that playbook is going to be super helpful. Um, I imagine that ED clinicians first using BUP will be wary of precipitating withdrawal, and they're going to be wary of sending somebody out with 32 milligrams of BUP on board. What is the worst thing you've seen happen with high-dose BUP? For example, if somebody leaves with 32 milligrams and goes and shoots up their regular dose of heroin, what do you see then? That's not going to be a problem. The buprenorphine could even be protective. Yeah, yeah. the buprenorphine is protective. That's the thing. You understand this molecule. It binds tighter to opioid receptors than heroin. And there's actually even literature that says that we should be reversing patients with buprenorphine rather than reversing them with naloxone. Uh, that's, that's not something we're going to get into now, but kind of that patients, principle is important. Patients are doing that in the field now. They're reviving one another with buprenorphine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really, I wouldn't say crazy, but we have to be scientists about this stuff. And again, buprenorphine, some, some people will say, well, what if you can't get them into any treatment? If you know that they're not going to go to treatment, would you still give them buprenorphine? And I say that if they're in withdrawal, 
there's a significant chance that by giving them a big dose of bup and getting them out of withdrawal, you may save that patient from overdosing. You might save the patient's life in a harm reduction type of way, correct? That you know that when patients are in withdrawal, they're at the highest risk of overdose. If you get them out of withdrawal and they resume their normal use until they can, you know, which is not a good thing, but if they resume their normal use, you've still decreased that patient risk and probably still done something good for that patient. Um, So really, I wouldn't let that long-term, hey, we need to have a perfect world and a perfect solution kind of undermine doing the right thing for that patient in front of you right now. And that high dose is a high dose of protection for patients, it sounds like. In my in my mind, yes. Steve, is there anything you'd add to the protocols being recommended by AD Bridge? If you want to avoid the dreaded precipitated withdrawal, it's very important to take a good substance use history. Some vital questions to ask would be, what is your drug of choice? You need to know if this is a short or a long-acting opioid. Also ask about alcohol and benzo use, as they can be sedating. How do you use it? Do you smoke, inject, snort, get the route of use? How much do you use? Ask about milligrams for oxycodone and grams for heroin used per day. Some patients won't know this, but they will know how much they typically spend per day. Prices vary considerably, but a gram of heroin will cost roughly $100, and oxycodone will cost $1 per milligram. In general, the larger the amount used, the higher the dose of buprenorphine they will need. You need to ask, when was the last time you used? How many hours ago? And then, most importantly, I think, ask them, are you in withdrawal? The patient will know. The cycle of intoxication and withdrawal is their life. And keep in mind that there is a huge amount of variability in the onset of withdrawal after last use. Some patients are rapid metabolizers and are in withdrawal much sooner. Some generalities, and these are only generalities, would be heroin. Patients typically go into withdrawal 12 to 24 hours after their last use. This can be much shorter. Oxycontin, 24 to 48 hours after their last use. Methadone, 48 to 72 hours out. Um, As a side note, in the clinic, when I'm switching a person from methadone to buprenorphine, I have the patient lower their dose to at least 50 milligrams and then have them not dose for two to three days. If a patient comes in on a dose that's significantly more than 50 milligrams, be very, very cautious. And I think the most important thing, too, about taking a good opioid history, and I kind of went through some of those points, is to make sure that the patient knows that you're asking them these really intimate questions for their benefit. So I'll often say, hey, listen, I know that you're struggling and that you're using opioids. All I care about is, one, taking good care of you. There's no judgment here. But in order for me to give you the right amount of buprenorphine and make sure that I give it to you and don't precipitate withdrawal, I need to know these things about your drug use. And then I'll ask all those questions that Steve asked so I have a good idea of what they're using, how much they're using, when the last time they used was. And then I'll be able to better know whether they're a good candidate or not. And for a lot of ER docs, you know, you're almost, in a sense, going through your internship and residency with this. So don't feel bad that this feels awkward asking these patients at first. But after you get into this, this is the same type of history. It feels almost as natural as asking a cardiac history now. You know, when you start talking with patients, this just becomes part of what you do. Oh, you're coming in withdrawal. Let's talk, let's talk drugs. Let's talk about how you're using. Let's talk about where you, when you're using. Let's talk about how much. Let's talk about if you're using other stuff. And let's get to the point where I know how to treat you best. So that's really an important caveat to, to also the addiction history. And I would think collaborative we language and a sort of a a joint spirit of inquiry to really figure out. For sure. These are patients who de-escalation is a very important skill. They're used to coming into the emergency department and not being treated well. They come in oftentimes with their dukes up, ready to have a fight. And when you come to the bedside and you show understanding and you show compassion and you talk a little bit of their language uh, and you and they know that you suddenly you're trying to help them, it really changes the game. Um, harm reduction does that. You know, we're, of course, in this podcast, we're talking a lot more about treatment of addiction and MIT. But bringing those harm reduction techniques to the bedside, I find, has really changed my practice. 
And I think it's important to remember that these patients avoid emergency departments at all costs. I hear that from my patients all the time. So if they finally break down and come into the emergency department, they are desperate. Oh, yes. And there's great literature, harm reduction literature. The average person who has a shooter's abscess waits around one to two weeks before they go into the emergency department and will often try to pop it by themselves or do other things. They do not like coming to see us. And I think that's also a problem. If we change our culture, I think that our patients, these patients with opioid use disorder, are going to feel a lot more comfortable seeing us. And we're going to be able to treat diseases much earlier before they progress to end stage, like endocarditis or, or such as epidural abscess or all these other really severe complications that we see, where patients show up and they're just at death's door and suddenly we have to do heroics to save them. If they come in earlier and know that they're going to get compassionate help, it really is going to change the course of their disease, change the course of their life, and help us in the medical system spend a lot less money. I would think, too, that you could learn a lot from your patients by taking these collaborative, compassionate, careful histories that you can learn a lot about what the experiences of these patients are. In particular, I think sometimes patients know what they're taking and sometimes patients don't know what they're taking. And that being upfront about that will allow you to identify patients who may have switched dealers or may be having unknown substances on board. Oh, yeah. I think us as ER docs, too, we kind of like being a little bit in the know when it comes to what's happening on the streets, right? And, uh, and I think that you can really be a lot more in the know if you talk with your IV drug users. You know, I remember I tell a lot of IV drug using stories to ER docs across the country. And when I tell them what patients do with their needles, be them lick the needles before putting into their into their skin, be it using all types of water, including toilet water. I mean, ER docs are looking at me like, you've got to be friggin' kidding me. But it's amazing what you can find out for your patients if you actually ask them and you actually talk with them. And here's the cool thing is, one, you can actually then talk with that patient who often has very low health literacy and tell them, you know why you have an abscess? It's because you lick your needles. And they look at you and they go, oh my gosh, that makes sense. And they're never going to lick a needle again before they put it in their arm. So you can really change the course of their, their drug-using life and then hopefully afterwards their recovery life. Because if they get out of substance use and into recovery and they don't have hep C and they don't have a new heart valve and they don't have HIV and they don't have surgery for you know an epidural abscess, that's a much healthier person you've now saved. So we can get a heck of a lot by talking with patients. And you're addressing the myth that people who inject drugs don't care about their health. And yes. These people care about their health and they need education and guidance and in harm reduction. Yes. And and for those of you who want to know more about harm reduction, uh, we've got a great harm reduction podcast that we did probably a year, year and a half ago with Lisa Rayville, who runs the largest needle exchange in uh, in in Colorado and one of the largest needle exchanges, uh, you know, really in the country. And she kind of goes through all of this with me, the science, why harm reduction is a good idea, why needle exchange is a good idea, how it saves hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, across the country and millions of dollars here in Colorado and why it's just better patient care. Harm reduction is a component of patient care that we really need to embrace in addition to MAT, in addition to limiting opioids, in addition to treating pain differently. So these are all parts of the solution that it's going to take to get our country out of this opioid epidemic. And not to get too philosophical on you, but harm reduction is a lot of what physicians do. It's what we should be doing. And we'll link to the that podcast in the show notes. So we've induced with BUP in the ED. How do you decide where you're going to send your patients? I'll review the acronyms. An OTP is an opioid treatment program. An OBOT is an office-based opioid treatment. How do you choose? Well, in general, I would send the patients with the more severe disorders to OTPs or opioid treatment programs. Patients that are higher functioning, have less severe disease, would be appropriate for the office-based opioid treatment. A good instrument that was designed by Dr. Brooklyn from Vermont is called the Treatment Needs Questionnaire. And it's just a series of 21 questions. You end up with a score. The score will determine the level of care needed. High score would need an OTP, low score 
an OBOT. But I'd like to kind of add finally that a treatment is treatment. So the critical thing is to get them into treatment as soon as possible. So obviously the, the facility that can take them the soonest is probably the best. And if the patients are are incorrectly refer to an OBOT, they can always then refer that patient to an OTP. So I wouldn't stress about that. Okay. And we'll link to that uh, treatment needs questionnaire from Vermont in the show notes. So let's talk about special populations. These will probably give most ED clinicians heartburn, but it's important to know what to do when these patients hit the door. Steve, what do you do with an adolescent who walks in with an opioid use disorder who's in withdrawal? Okay, well, the first thing we should recognize is that the younger that a person starts using substances, the more likely an SUD will develop. 90% of adults with an SUD initiated substance use as a teenager. This is related to brain maturation. The frontal regions of the brain are the last to be myelinated and aren't completed until the mid-20s. This makes adolescents particularly vulnerable to substance use disorders. We know from NIDA data from 2014, 6% of all teenagers misuse prescription opioids. And, you know, here in Colorado, just as recently as 2012, we had the second highest rate of substance use by teenagers and adolescents, which is really scary for what that might mean later on. Um, but, but again, I digress. Steve, go ahead. Under Colorado state law, it's important to remember that minors may consent to receive medical treatment for drug use and addiction without the consent or notification of a parent or guardian. Buprenorphine is FDA-approved for age 16 and greater who meet the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder. Methadone can be used to treat opioid use disorder in ages 16 to 18 years old, but there must be at least two documented failed detox treatments within the past year, and you must have parental consent. Okay, so Steve, we've got this 14-year-old in your emergency department requesting help in withdrawal, no parent present. What would you do? That's a tough one. I would start working on arranging follow-up for that patient. Uh, make sure they're safe to be discharged, but I would have your social worker or peer specialist start exploring options for adolescent treatment. I know at Arts with the university, we have a, a facility called Synergy that specifically treats adolescents. So would you give them buprenorphine, Steve? First, I would want to take a very complete full history um, and that may not be appropriate in the emergency department, but you know, there are so many factors. I would want to know if there was a parent or guardian there, even though they don't technically need permission. Wouldn't you do a urine screen to see if they actually Just were using opioids? I mean, I would think you'd confirm that they're using Let's back it. Up. Yeah, so I, I, I want to push you here, though, a little bit, because I, I just want to know if you're going to treat them or not. Better, you know? Does this happen? Do you see... I mean, I've seen, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen a lot of these, but I think, yeah. you know, people are going to see I mean, they too. exist, and, you know, a lot of my patients start using heroin at 13 and 14. Really? Yeah, you said that yesterday. Yeah. Uh -huh. So these patients are clearly out there. I will say that in my experience, they're less likely to be identified as an opioid user. So if they come in with symptoms of withdrawal, to be frank, most clinicians are going to miss that, right? And we're just going to treat the vomiting and the nausea and the abdominal pain or whatever the symptoms may be. Um, so these are, these are difficult patients to detect, I would say, first off. I don't know how many in my career as emergency physician I've missed. I'm sure there have been many. That brings up the question, have you missed a lot, those nausea, vomiting, diarrhea patients? How many of them might have been opioid withdrawal that would just flew right over your head? Of all ages, I've missed a ton, um, admittedly. Yeah, and I think with this patient in, in particular, it's a really tough case, which is why this is kind of one of our discussion points. Um, I think that for me, um, I would strongly consider giving this child, this adolescent buprenorphine, knowing that it's, you know, one, legal for them to request it, and also knowing that it's just the best medicine that I could do for that child is to likely get them out of withdrawal, to stabilize them, to try to get them into an opioid use treatment. And if they did go out and start using right afterwards, that I'd given them some protection. Again, there's no right answer here, you know, but I think that that, that was the one that probably makes the most sense to me. And I'd also probably try to get an addiction specialist on the line 
uh, or someone else to help guide me, you know, in that decision. But my in initial inclination would be to treat the child. Are there programs for adolescents specifically who are using opioids in Colorado? Are there facilities you can send teens? Yes, there are inpatient facilities in Colorado for teens. Finding MAT or medication-assisted treatment is much more difficult for minors in general at those facilities. So at what age are you less worried about these issues? At 18, are you good to go? At ARTS, Addiction Treatment and Research Services, we start treating patients at age 18. Mm -hmm. All right, another special situation is pregnant females. Don, would you ever even consider starting puke on a pregnant woman? Yes, and this is one of the patient populations where there's been the most proven benefit. And per federal guidelines, pregnant patients are a very high priority to get into treatment. And here in Colorado, I know that when you show up to a OTP and you are pregnant, you go to the front of the line because we know that there are two lives at stake. So the first thing that we should all know is that opioid withdrawal is really, really dangerous for the fetus. Really, a lot of women miscarry when they're in opiate withdrawal. So you don't want women going around and getting into opiate withdrawal. Standard of care in our OB communities is to start MAT with either buprenorphine or methadone for this really vulnerable population. And here are some of the benefits. Is you start creating a stable intrauterine environment for that fetus. So the fetus isn't experiencing these really wild swings of heroin intoxication and then withdrawal, or oxycodone intoxication and then withdrawal. Mothers who are on MAT have increased weight gain. They have increased newborn weight, and babies just do better. They also have less acquisition of HIV and hepatitis C. When it comes to neonatal abstinence syndrome, this is a complication of treatment. And that's how we should view it, because we know babies do better when the mother who does have an opioid use disorder is using methadone or using buprenorphine. And we know that those babies will often be born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. And it's around 60 to 80% of infants who have intrauterine opioid exposure who are born with NAS. Around half of those will need treatment with either morphine or with methadone for NAS. Um, But here's the big thing, is they've actually done a study called the Mother's Study that came out in the New England Journal in 2010 that looked at babies born to mothers treated with buprenorphine versus methadone. And if I was to really summarize, mothers treated with buprenorphine do better, and babies treated with buprenorphine do better. They need less morphine to treat neonatal abstinence syndrome. They were treated for a shorter duration, four four days versus 10 days. They spent less time in the hospital by usually a full week and a half. So overall, for the fetus, buprenorphine is a huge winner. When it comes to mother, though, the one caveat is that less women taking buprenorphine completed the study versus methadone. So in terms of the dropout rate, In the buprenorphine group, we had a 33% dropout rate. And in the methadone group, we had an 18% dropout rate. So methadone seemed to get better retention rates than buprenorphine did in the study. So a little bit of a mixed bag, but I think when you speak with a lot of MFMs who are giving buprenorphine and using MAT, I think that the pendulum has started swinging toward using more buprenorphine than using methadone for these patients. Sounds like, though, it would depend on the patient. And if you had someone who was iffy on program compliance or attendance, you might go with methadone? Yes, correct. And an important thing to remember about methadone is if a pregnant patient comes in like to an emergency department and they've been on methadone, you do not want to switch them to buprenorphine. That can be very dangerous. Yeah. The other caveat to know is that buprenorphine And its monoproduct of subutex is preferred in pregnant ladies. We usually do not give them suboxone, which has naloxone, because naloxone, as as happens with so much of these drugs in pregnancy, has not been studied. We don't know if it's a teratogen. So usually we just give the monoproduct of buprenorphine and not bup plus naloxone. But pregnancy is really, really a tough situation. And this is a patient population, too, who I might induce 
but I would want to make sure that I did my best to get great follow-up. And if, for example, it was daytime hours and I can speak with an OTP and tell them, I have a patient here who's pregnant and is actively in withdrawal. And they said, you know what, we can take her right now. I might put her in a cab and send her right to the OTP. Right. And it is important to remember, like you said, federally mandated, these patients are a priority. They are our highest priority as far as scheduling. We get these patients in right away. And in the past, we've tried to to put these patients in rapid detoxes and just try to get them off of their, their opioids in a short period of time. And this can be very dangerous. Uh, it's very risky for the baby. And the relapse rates for the mothers are extremely high. So this is absolutely not recommended now. I would think also that for this patient population, you might really emphasize that this is the best thing that a pregnant woman in opioid withdrawal can do for her for her baby. Absolutely agree. And I tell pregnant patients that all the time, that this is their first great uh, stride in being an excellent mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and having a baby can be very motivating for a lot of these patients to get into recovery, to start treatment, you know. So I think that it, that you talk with a lot of uh, MFMs and, and addiction obese specialists who, who do this, and and this is an opportunity for the for the patient to to start on the road to recovery when they have a child. Absolutely, and I think it's important to remember that all pregnant women want to do the right thing for their babies. I think that's universal, and it's commonly said that. When a woman is using a substance which she knows can be harmful for her baby and she can't not use it, that is pathognomonic for addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the thought, just like you alluded to, Steve, that no, we need to detox them right away is scientifically inaccurate and dangerous for both mother and fetus. Just quick follow-up. Say you've got your pregnant woman on buprenorphine. Things are going well. She gives birth. Did I hear right that if that infant has neonatal abstinence syndrome, that he or she is put on morphine, not bup? Typically, they're put on morphine. There are, I believe, some studies using buprenorphine, but the standard of care is morphine. Okay, let's finish this by addressing some of the criticisms and concerns. I was struck when I Googled this topic at how much negative stuff there is on the internet about bup. In our second podcast, we stressed that the criticism that we are just substituting one addiction for another is uh, deeply wrongheaded and not valid. I think we should touch on that again. We are substituting not addictions, but dependencies. Don, maybe you could address that once more for us, just to drive that point home. Yeah, for sure. You're not changing one addiction for another. And if instead of going through that whole rigmarole again, I can just use another disease state. Let's talk about diabetes, right? Would you ever not give a diabetic insulin or glipizide because all you're doing is enabling them to eat more and to have an unhealthy lifestyle, etc.? The answer is absolutely not. We'd all look at you and say, what are you, a crazy doctor who's committing malpractice? Right? Lifestyle is extremely important for treatment of diabetes, but you also want to make that patient safer by giving them the insulin they need, by supplementing what's there. Right? And you wouldn't call them an insulin addict you know, because there's no behavior. They're insulin dependent though, and that's a really important caveat. Those are insulin dependent diabetics. And a lot of our patients with opioid use disorder will be opioid-dependent patients, right? But they're not addicted anymore. If they, if they really get into recovery, their brains remodel, they stop misusing, they stop all the behaviors that constitute addiction. So addiction and dependency are different. And if you treat the addiction with a drug like buprenorphine or like methadone, even though it's an opioid or a partial opioid, you're not just substituting one addiction for another. To this point, I called around this morning to a number of bup clinics in the Denver area, and I was struck by how many of them are offering a six to eight week program, still with this view that abstinence is what we're going for. What do you think about that? 
the evidence is overwhelmingly against that type of treatment. The relapse rates are just way too high. This is a disorder that takes time. And as Don alluded to when he was mentioning we're not trading one addiction for another, we have to remember that buprenorphine or methadone buy the brain time to heal. And that's critical. Once a patient is stable on buprenorphine or methadone, it's at least 18 months before that neurochemistry begins to normalize. Yeah. And also, Zab, I think what you're running into there is you're running into an artifact that's been created by insurance. Because insurance says, we will pay for your detox for one to two months, and then after, you better be detoxed. And what insurance has done is they've built in all these scientific inaccuracies that put patients at risk. Because there is no way in Hades that you're going to be over your opioid addiction or over your addiction in six weeks. That's just setting that patient up for failure. Again, you know, you need to put patients on this for years. It needs to be an extremely, extremely slow taper. There's evidence, too, that sometimes these patients should just never be off this because it just predisposes them to relapse. And again, the field of addiction medicine of which Steve, you know, it represents, is a very young field. It's our youngest medical specialty. They're going to be building their evidence base over the next one to two decades. We're going to answer a lot of questions because we have specialists looking at this. Right now, the evidence says rapid detoxes are wrong and that really long-term treatment is what we should be counseling patients for. We know that lengthened treatment correlates with better outcomes. Another concern that I would guess some of our listeners are running through their heads is if we start giving out BUP and advertising our emergency department as BUP friendly, are we going to be overrun with people seeking BUP? Are we going to be overrun with patients who inject drugs or patients with opioid use disorders? That's not been the experience of emergency departments that have implemented programs like we're suggesting. Yeah. And I'd say more than that, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if you suddenly had a flood of patients who have a life-threatening disease who came to your doors looking for help and you could provide it? So I'd flip that question absolutely on its head and say, why are you asking that question? Do you just not like these patients? Do you think that they don't deserve your care? And then I'd go a step further because there's actually new evidence that when you start an EDBUP program, you give it a few months to run. What you do for your community is you reduce the amount of patients that you're seeing with overdose. You reduce the amount of admissions that you're having for opioid use disorder complications. So in a way, the direct answer is nope. You don't see more of them. You see less of them, especially once you start treating a disease like a disease. Yeah. I'm guessing you'd rather be overrun with these patients than overrun with stuffy noses. Yes. Another thing I think might be running through people's minds is the question of, well, Suboxone, this is billed as a miracle drug sometimes, but I see patients all the time who've been on Suboxone and they relapse, they go and they use heroin and they are in and out of Suboxone treatment. Doesn't that mean it's, I don't think this, but might some people think, doesn't that mean it doesn't really work? Many of my patients continue to use opioids when they're in treatment. I mean, that's, that's a reality that we deal with. You know, we have all kinds of diversion protocols and, and things, but the reality is that patients will use in treatment. From a harm reduction perspective, that's still a win. Even if they're just using the buprenorphine intermittently, they're using it and it's reducing the risk of overdose. And, and again, let me tie that in to other disease processes, because we know by scientific proof that patients with diabetes will continue to eat cake and Skittles, right? And we are not outraged by the fact that a diabetic might eat a sweet every once in a while. We know that my dad, who has had coronary artery disease and has eight friggin' stents, still loves him some steak and some bacon cheeseburger, Right. I mean, a cardiologist, sorry, if you're listening, 
please don't allow your brain to explode. But it's, it's true, he does it. And he's on a statin, right, to, to, to lower this. So we do not have this double standard of judgment with other disease processes that we do when it comes to patients with opioid use disorder who may have lapses and continue to at times use. And the other thing that I'd add is that those patients take time to get into full recovery. An addiction is a relapsing, remitting disease. You should expect patients to relapse. It's part of it. If you put patients on treatment for MS, right, which is another relapsing, remitting disease, oftentimes they'll relapse. And when patients relapse, the right thing to do is not to come come there and say, look, you failed. We should kick you off this. Or now you can't get any more buprenorphine. Or, or, or bring that moral kind of failure aspect to it. We should be encouraging. We should be continuing them on therapy. We should be trying to augment their therapy via more counseling, higher doses, et cetera. But really, I think that these types of questions just show how far we have to go in leaving that stigma behind. This is just a measure of the stigma that still surrounds this, is that this is a chronic relapsing medical disease where we feel it's on some level okay to shoot our wounded. Don, Steve, let's say that you're listening to this podcast from a very small community. Uh, maybe you're the only or one of few providers in the ED. How do you bridge your patients to, to therapy when there is no one prescribing uh, MAT in the community? That can be quite a challenge. For a brief time, I worked at a facility in Montrose, Colorado, and I experienced firsthand the challenges of trying to provide substance use treatment in an area such as that. There are very few providers on the Western Slope right now prescribing buprenorphine. I'm hoping that more and more will come online. Fortunately, most people that live in rural areas are used to traveling greater distances for just goods and services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they know they may have to drive to Grand Junction, uh, drive to Durango uh, to get treated. This but is a population, though, that often doesn't have cars. Absolutely. It can be very challenging. So I, I would say two things. One is I hope that as telehealth continues to develop, that we're able to outreach to more of these rural communities and provide the specialty care that some of these patients need. And the second thing I would say If you're a group of rural docs listening to this and you're saying, my God, wouldn't it be nice if we had one doc who could prescribe buprenorphine, is to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and ask yourself, should I be that doctor? Should I be the one who steps up and provides this for my community? Because what it takes is an X waiver to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. We know that you're going to be learning, in a sense, trial by error. But we also know that the most important thing is treatment, that you actually give patients medications. And I'd say that if you you yourself or you find a primary care doctor or someone else who's willing to be that go-to person in your community to build that expertise, that you will be providing your community a tremendous service. So I hope that all of us who look at this crisis and might be dealing with this crisis in our communities would step up and to try to fulfill the need that our patients have. Can we look more closely at that critical moment of the patients leaving, you've induced with bup, and what happens next? How does that referral process work? I would say ideally you've done your homework before you start the program and you know what your referral options are. And, you know, I think that there is a common myth amongst front-range emergency departments that there's no place to send these patients. And what I'd say is here in Denver, there are tons of places, OBOTs and OTPs, that are accepting patients. And what we should be doing is reaching out and trying to form relationships with them so you build that referral network. Now, there are a few tools that you can use as well. There's OPSafe, uh, which is a online program or also an app that actually has a referral database that you can use to start looking at where treatment is in the area. You could also just assign this to your social worker and say, listen, I want you to find the closest you know, uh, OBOTs. I want you to find the closest OTPs, and I want you to call them and see if they're willing to take patients from our emergency department. And then ask to set up a meeting with their medical director. 
build this network because it's out there. And that's at least for, for urban communities. We've already discussed about how that can be a little more difficult in rural communities. In urban Denver, in Colorado Springs, and other places, I'd say that oftentimes people say that it doesn't exist because they haven't looked for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that you'd want to get your list organized to ensure that you have providers who take Medicaid, Medicare, private insurers, TRICARE, and that you really had your ducks in a row on that. Yes, uh, absolutely. You want to refer the patient to the right place. And you want to know this. I mean, it's going to take some legwork. I'm sorry to tell anyone who's on the phone thinking that all you have to do is listen to this podcast and, and give buprenorphine. But this does take a little bit of work on everyone's part. And Colorado Bridge, what we're going to do is try to make this as easy as possible, to have a playbook for everyone to go by um, to, so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time that you do this. But at the same time, when it comes to finding referrals and your referral network that's best for your community, there is no one in a better place to do that than you. You who work in your emergency department, you who know the resources that are available, you've got to do the work. Don, when will Colorado Bridge be up and running? Hopefully by the time that this podcast is out, because it's supposed to be hosted there. So if a person goes to Colorado Bridge, what resources will be there? So Colorado Bridge will, first of all, have um, how to start programs. It will have the algorithms for treatment. And then we're actually working with OPSAFE. So we have a built-in um, lo- treatment locator that's going to be up updated uh, pretty frequently as more treatment options become available. So we hope to make this very, very robust for our state as a statewide solution. And will that be free for any ED to use? Yes. Um, through our really wonderful relationship between Colorado Hospital Association, the Colorado ASAP, which is Colorado American College of Emergency Physicians, and also the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse, all of us are working together to really try to make a robust program so that we can start treating addiction better from the emergency department. Thank you, Steve and Don. So we're almost at the end of our four-part series. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I hope that after listening to these podcasts that ER docs will change their practice. That's my greatest desire. And that they'll better serve this very vulnerable patient population. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Steve. That's my number one hope. And I hope that, you know, also that here in Colorado... We're going to step up, that we're going to do things that are innovative, that we're going to be revolutionaries in a sense when it comes to the treatment of opioid use disorder. Because right now, there's states that are ahead of what we're doing, like Vermont, that's really bent the curve on their opioid deaths. Um, And here in Colorado, I mean, we lost over 1,000 patients to overdose last year. That's too many. We can do so, so much better. And we, in the emergency department, I think really hold the keys to that change, to decreasing those overdose deaths. And we have to step up. We have to do this. You have to revolutionize your practice. Your patients, your community, our country are depending on you. Uh, And I hope we all take that to heart and are keen to answering that bell. You know, if you could wave your magic wand and take every IV opioid user in Colorado and transition him or her to... MAT, the potential for harm reduction is enormous, and that would transform Colorado. It would. I would like to thank all you listeners for tuning in to this four-part series, and I would particularly like to thank Don Stater and Steve Young for all of their expertise and education here. I would like to thank the sponsors of this Colorado Bridge series, the Colorado Hospital Association and the Colorado Office of Behavioral Health. To sum everything up here in seven points, first of all, treatment with BUP is easier, less time-consuming, and far more effective for management of opioid withdrawal and OUD than the standard of care with clonidine, IV fluids, Haldol, and other symptomatic therapies. Second, make sure you're screening for candidates for BUP induction in the ED. These patients should be in opioid withdrawal, and they should have no complicating factors such as the use of methadone or other long-acting agents. 
Third, induction of bube is easy. It requires no IV, no labs, and is usually accomplished in a couple of hours. It requires a chair, not a hospital bed. Fourth, precipitated withdrawal is a risk of induction, but a careful history can help avoid it, and it can be treated with symptomatic meds or more bube. Fifth, patients should always be discharged with naloxone, or at least a prescription for naloxone, and a plan for close follow-up and a warm handoff. Sixth, for very vulnerable populations, such as adolescents with OUD, bube is an option. For pregnant women, bube is a lifesaver for both baby and mother. Finally, you are part of the solution to the opioid epidemic. You can treat addiction better than you ever have before. You can save and improve lives. We should all be excited to work together and help make Colorado Bridge a success. All of the resources we've discussed in these four episodes and written summaries of all the content in these podcasts will be available on our website. Again, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Don. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in. You can find show notes, links to further information, and so much more at coloradomat.org. Please give us a visit.